All right, here we go, here we go. Epiphany 6. Sign in. You should have a new, there's a bag going around. The money will go someplace good for somebody who doesn't have as much as you do. So uh, that's a good criteria. And you should have a uh, long outline. But let's pray and then let's go. We're six Sundays after Epiphany. We're very near the ashes. Uh, Transfiguration is next week. That's the hinge between Epiphany and uh, Lent. You have this glorious, that's him, you know. That's him in Epiphany. That's him, the wise man. That's the guy. And then he does all these cool things. Speaks. But I mean, the sermon is very important this morning. He doesn't just speak. He also does. And then he also bids. You know, he sets your course for what the rest of your life should look like. That's him. And then transfiguration is the ultimate. That's him. Up on the mountain and they're, they're struck down in fear. That's him. And then it, he goes to the cross during Lent, and it doesn't look like him at all. That's not the God that we'd expect. So uh, this is a time, you know, Jesus makes sense of his life in the next uh, six or eight weeks, and you'll have to make sense of yours as well. So here we go, uh, six Sundays. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ, of God, in the face of Christ. That's a terribly important verse, especially if you like icons. That um, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts. How? Not directly, but in the glory of God, in the face of Christ. If you've seen the face of Christ, then you have seen, if you've seen the icon of Christ, I didn't check the Greek, but I'm, I'm positive you know, well, at least his face, but it might say icon. That face of Christ shows you who God is, okay? So you're trying to line yourself up with the face of Christ. And artwork for, you know, a couple thousand years has been trying to come to grips with what the face of Christ looks like. So uh, that's good stuff. So let's pray. Christ our Lord, who will come to be transfigured on the mountain and manifest your glory to the disciples, shed forth your everlasting light on us, your servants, that we behold your glory and enter into your sufferings and proclaim you to the world, O light given into darkness, you yourself, light of men. Amen. All right, everybody got an outline? You know, I start writing early in the week, and I always intend that um, I'm going to get through it in a week, and then you know, it's Friday at 2, and I'm eight pages in, and I'm thinking, I haven't really gotten to what I was after yet. <laughs> so then I think to myself, well, you know, um, it is what it is, but you should have an outline. Um, I'm going to spend a little time, uh, maybe all of this morning, kind of backing and filling uh, for a couple of reasons. One is, I've no, this, 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 this conversation on Sunday and also the conversation on Friday and on Tuesday has generated a lot of discussion. Uh, what we've done is, uh, we, you know, we always kind of look at the big picture. So a couple of years ago, we looked at, um, over the last couple of years, we've looked at community and beauty. Why did we do that? Because we were going to a new place to build a big community and to live in the beauty of Christ. So, uh, but part of doing that is always to think about other people as well. So we spent a couple of years talking about, one, about what it looks like to be the body of Christ, the community, and also the beautiful things that would attract us. And if you were here, you remember that the word for beauty in the scriptures is a word for when God, Jesus, Jesus descends on the altar 
to consume the sacrifice in the Old Testament. That's the word for beauty. So the ultimate beauty is the incarnation. And you know that you just heard that. The ultimate beauty is in the face of Christ. Okay, so we talked about what beautiful things are, and we talked about what community looks like. But we also realize that if you're always focusing in, you lose track of what's outside. So this Sunday morning class was meant to go with Tuesday evening men and Friday morning women. This is the Bible study that then gets the practicum in Tuesday night and Friday morning. So we had a little protest early on that the Friday and, and maybe Tuesday weren't really Bible studies. Well, they are and they aren't. They are, it's the practicum, it's the application, it's the strategy, it's the understanding of the world. You know, the Bible study isn't you just, just read a bunch of texts and you just keep reading and everything's gonna be okay. As you heard in the gospel for today, it's about speaking and doing. Or I was, I, you know, at the early service, I was so struck by the Old Testament reading. That is a pastor's life. That is a church's life summed up in one reading. You could have a whole seminary education four years just on the text of Naaman. You have every player there. You have God, you have the prophet, you have the king, you have strength, you have weakness, you have rejection, you have doing, you have God standing behind his word but you don't have God forcing, and you have, it's, it's the most amazing thing. You could teach four years of seminary from one text, from that single text about Naaman, okay? So one is, I guess the first thing to say to you is big picture. We know where we're going. We know where we want to go. Um, we want to make a beautiful thing inside and gather you, but we also want you to think outside. Second thing is, is you know in any reasoning, if you make a mistake early in your logic, that multiplies itself as you go. So one of the things, uh, and you know, maybe this is our fault for presuming too much. One of the things I've noticed is, is uh, sometimes people have forgotten what terms mean, and they get so nervous because they haven't got a clarity about what terms mean, or on the other side, they assert, and it's even been asserted, you know, y'all don't know what you're doing. And that's been kind of an interesting assertion to listen to. It comes much more pleasantly if you put a question mark on it. Um, I was thinking this morning, uh, with my own confessor, it was 20 years before I disagreed with him. Now, I did ask him questions in that time, but I never asserted in the first 20 years that I knew him. And in that time, he told me which PhD program to go to, and he even moved me and my family overseas twice. And we did that because he was my confessor, he was my pastor, and he told me what to do. And so it's been interesting to kind of watch young Gainig up here and then people sort of, you know, he's so young and ah. Well, he speaks for Christ and not for himself, but what does that mean? So we're gonna to have to engage that, what it means to have a pastor too. Because if you'll turn to Galatians, um, which is where we are, part of what got me giggling this week is I read Galatians 3, which is where we are. We're at Galatians 3 and James 2. <clears throat> so I read this and I thought, you know, I started early in the week, I started thinking about this, I thought, you know, if I preached this sermon, um, you'd call the bishop. If I started out by saying, you're all fools, what would you do? You'd church shop, you'd call the bishop. You're all fools. No pastor can talk to me that way. Well, I mean, let's read Galatians. You foolish Galatians. Exclamation point. Who has bewitched you? Which is, you're witches, right? What if I talk to you that way? I mean, some people have said to me, it's not your job uh, to put the law on us. It's not your job to rebuke us. 
uh, well, you just have to work at the text with that. Um, you know, I, you know, you got to figure out what a pastor's for. I got to figure out what a congregation is for. Hopefully, we're going to try to do that. But um, you foolish Galatians, you fools! What if Ganig would have started? He was very gentle with you this morning. But what if he'd have started? You fool! I mean, that was a great sermon. This is that was a great sermon about the Lord tells you what to do and you do something else. Man, oh man, that is a story of the church. You fools! You witches! Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of faith? So what did I say? I told you. Which did I tell you? And you notice how the motion is wrung out of this? It's just the data. Did I tell you that you're saved by the work of the Spirit or did I tell you that you're saved by your own works? A very simple question. Okay. Are you so foolish? Again, ooh, ah, call the elders. Having begun with the Spirit, are you now ending in the flesh? Which is, Paul saying, did I, was I somehow faithful and then I somehow got unfaithful? Am I saying something different now than I said before? Well, I don't know. Did you experience so many things in vain? If it really is in vain. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Okay. So basically what he's saying is, we don't have our terms straight. Uh, we don't, uh, well, I just, I once had a woman who transferred from the congregation who said to me, um, I'm leaving because you require me, you require more of me than Jesus does. Which is to say to a pastor, you're unfaithful and you require works of me beyond grace. To which, you know, my reply was, name them. And then she couldn't, her problem was, She'd never had a pastor before, and she'd never had a Jesus before. And at that point, somebody has to die. Uh, your pastor, your Jesus, or yourself. So that's sort of what you're up against here. And the only way through that is not hue and cry. The way through that is to agree on what Jesus says. So the pregnant uh, point where Pastor Ganig said to you, if you don't like this, you'll have to see Jesus about it. About it. So um, I sort of put you here uh, in, into a place of saying, let's backfill, let's see if we can get common ground, and then let's see if we can get going. Because here's the thing. Raise your hand if you think you're saved by works. Raise your hand really high. If you think you're saved by works. You know the Catholic Church, um, big publicity from New York Times, two of you sent me the article this week, thank you very much. Has, uh, I gave you this in, in 2000 for the millennium. Um, uh, the Pope offered... Uh, John Paul offered indulgences, and I sort of gave you the heads up in 2000, and I gave you the thing. Um, indulgences are making a great comeback in the, in the church. You can't buy them. It's not so crass as that, but you can do things, and you can knock some years off purgatory. And that it's becoming public on our church's websites. You know, it's a dangerous thing. Now, don't get all up in arms about that. We've got bigger fish to fry. But that's not my problem. I mean, raise your hand if you think you're saved by works. Okay, so that's not my problem. Because what's happened is we've been talking about the sanctified life, which is a very difficult thing for Lutherans to talk about. Even Luther couldn't, couldn't abide James. I was driving over this morning thinking, if I have to choose between Luther and James, I take James. He's in the canon. Okay? <laughs> Luther's not in the canon. He's Luther. And he said some very regrettable things from time to time, um, you know, about marriage, about Jews, about other things. James is in the canon. So if you have to choose, take James. 
despite what Luther might say, although I love Luther, you know, you couldn't love Luther more than I love Luther. But if, if justification is not your problem, then every time we speak about sanctification, don't say, but what about justification? Okay, so for all of you, if you're, raise your hand if you're unsure that you're going to heaven. Okay, so now we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about presuming you're all in the church, presuming you're all forgiven, presuming you've all been to the Eucharist, presuming Christ lives in you, presuming you're the church, presuming if you all drop dead right now, we would do in your funeral, presuming if you, if you get killed on the way home today, you'll be at the liturgy of the Lamb in his kingdom, which has no end. Presume that. Now the question is, what's next? Or so what? Or what is as Wright says, life after life after death. If the life after death thing is nailed, the question is, what's next? And that has been the trouble of the Lutheran Church for 500 years. It's not wrong, it's not wrong to remember the Reformation and rejoice in the Reformation and cling tight to the Reformation, but to fight the Reformation, battles. When that's not our battles, it distracts us from the real things, and that is really, you know, a chink in the Lutheran armor. So what we're trying to do is redeem the sanctified life, um, and all of that means, and we're going to have to kind of go slowly here, but you should, and I will encourage you, I have been over the years, you know, I push because I want you to learn a lot and I don't want to bore you. The downside of that is, you know, sometimes you swallow things maybe that you aren't 100% with, so I'll just say, in the next eight pages that follow, I'm going to try to slow down. And I'm going to actually have you read some of the texts. And I'm going to try not to gloss over. But I also, I'll do that, but you do this. If you don't get it, or you think I'm wrong, you need to raise your hand and ask a question. This is extraordinarily important. It's extraordinarily important to agree on what we mean in theology. Theology lives and breathes by the clarity of intellectual rigor from a baptized brain. And you're very smart people. So we need to share that, and when we share that, then our possibility to do things is remarkable. Okay. So just look at the first thing. And I know that we use different terms. We're using different terms because if we say justification and sanctification, people hear 16th century battle. If we say incorporation and participation, people don't know what they're hearing. That's intentional, because we want to try to get them to the same place using a different avenue. It's a strategy to get with people who are afraid of the church or think the church is irrelevant, and yet who are interested, as Wright says, in very critical issues like justice and beauty and community and spirituality, the thing that drives any college kid on any college campus. They don't need to go to church. You just pull up Facebook today and creep on your kids, uh, just creep on your college kids, uh, you know, page. You could, you could break down 90% of what is on a college kid's Facebook page under justice. Yeah, we're going to the, we're going to the rally for the Palestinians tonight. Beauty. My acapella group is singing. Spirituality. Um, Tibetan monks are here tonight, or the Dalai Lama's here. Have you, ever, have you ever known kids when the Dalai Lama comes to campus? He's surpassed only perhaps by the Pope. But the Dalai Lama is a bigger draw on any campus as anybody anywhere. Only the Pope, I think, might surpass him. What? That's a spirituality issue. 
or community. What is Facebook but a community? That's how it's advertised. So this is the way that you get to other people. And you may not be comfortable talking this way, but they're not comfortable talking to you. You know, there was a visitor who came to the door this morning and said, you're a very brave woman. Because I think to myself, what it must be like to come from outside into this where you all know each other and there's a ritual and you, you, know, you know when to stand up and sit down and sing and pass the basket and write things down and go up front and kneel and do you do this. What we have to do is maintain the ritual which gives meaning to life. We also need to make it so welcoming that people feel like from the first day, even if they don't understand it, that's my spot. That's what we're trying to do. We know what we're trying to do. We're trying to build a beautiful community that's welcoming for other people. It's not just for you. Make disciples of all nations, teaching them to treasure up everything I've ever told you. We're trying to make a welcoming community. And if you just do the same old things all the time, it doesn't welcome a new group of people. So the, the, the tension here is to hold things that we know give meaning to life. Ritual, song, beauty, mystery, light, darkness, kindness, love, discipline, obedience, rigor, authority, authenticity, excellence. That's the point. And you can either have that and work toward it for every heartbeat you've got, or, and this is really important because it's the gospel, you can put a stick in the spokes and bring the whole thing crashing down. I mean, Elijah didn't even come out of his house today. Jesus didn't chase the leper down and say, now I told you, Baba, you know. Jesus left for a desolate place. Nobody will listen. I'm off to a desolate place. And then to the next place. And it was interesting what Pastor Ganey didn't say, which is the leper ruined Jesus' next plans because he wanted to go do something somewhere else, and because the leper spoke, everybody came around him and kept him from doing his plans. They frustrated Jesus because they couldn't listen. It's a fascinating text. So what we want to do is not be the kind of people who frustrate Jesus. Now there's, you know, there's all, that's, that's, you know, that's not, I'm not talking about lockstep. I'm talking about intelligence. I'm talking about, yeah, we all get emotional at times, and we all have vested interests, and you know, life is difficult sometimes, and the economy, it's difficult, and people are kind of mixed up, and it's hard. But you know what, as I told you, you know, when we started this, crisis not only develops character, it reveals character. It shows who you are. Everybody has a bad day once in a while. But day after day, crisis reveals who you are. You should have a good look at who you are and see whether that's in service to Christ. Does that make sense? I mean, this is just under the, this is the fast-talking lawyer full disclosure thing where I tell you that, you know, the, the lease rate is really 16.93% and there'll be a residual value of $47,000 on a $13,000 car when you get done. Yeah, that went over like the 401k, 201k joke. Okay, good. So I'm just, I'm with you, Yonker. I'm feeling your pain, buddy, all right? You and me, buddy, let's stick together. <clears throat> just be the two of us, but we'll see what happens. All right, so here. You can stop me at any time, but if you don't stop me, I'm going to presume you're saying okay or at least considering it, or you'll get back to me in 20 years. Okay? Incorporation is to be drawn into Christ himself. This should not be new language. If you've ever read Romans 6, we were baptized into Christ, and now we are in Christ. You are incorporated. It's called a liminal experience. 
you actually understand that there's a world in here and a world out there. And when you're baptized, you actually cross a border. It's like getting into the ark. It's like going into the promised land. It is like entering the temple. It is like being called to be one of the 12 disciples. It is the reason your font in a church goes at the door. It's how you get into Christ. And once you cross, now you're in Christ. That's all incorporation means. Don't be scared of the word. It's to be risen from the dead. Almost every morning when I drive by, I think of old Eifert. Man, I'm thinking, man, you're just to my right. For some reason, I always think of him going, not coming home. I guess because he was always here first. He'd meet me at the door with a cup of coffee. Hey, hey. <laughs> How you going? Okay. That's going to be a good day. That Christ is on you. Now, you can say it any way you want. He is on you in your baptism. He puts his name on you. He is in you at the Eucharist. Take heat, and it's inserted inside you. And he is for you. Oh, my gosh, that should be John chapter 8, not John chapter 9. Golly, I was giving you there the woman uh, caught in adultery. I'm very sorry. And now, just as very, the next thing is very important. This is the first step in follow me. Justification, incorporation, is not the end. This is extraordinarily important. It is the beginning. The Christian life is not, the follow me life, the disciple of Jesus is not, I'm not going to hell. You know, that was an issue at one time in the church and another time in American evangelicalism. That is not the issue we're talking about. You know, you said you weren't worried about going to hell, and if you're worried about going to hell, you should come and talk to me. I'm going to tell you about your baptism. There's no way the Lord can damn you if you have the Eucharist in you because he has to damn his own son who you carry in your flesh. You know, unless you spit him out and trample on him, you know, it just, you're fine. But that's not the, that's not the last thing, that's the first thing. That's what's so hard for people to understand. It's not just about you and you not going to hell. I know all of American religion has been predicated on that. I don't care. That's not life. That is not church. That is not salvation history. That is not eschatological change. That is not what we're doing. Yes, we're doing that. It's the first thing. Incorporation is the first thing. You got it? You okay? I mean, this is a weird deal for you if you're a Lutheran. Because even at, even at the conference, you know, there was a speaker who gave this brilliant thing about Mercy and care and the catechumenate, a couple of guys, and then the question came, you know, and it always comes. It's 200 pastors in a room, there's always one guy who can't resist. And it came from a guy actually I love. How does this all fit together with justification being the chief article of the faith? And the speaker gave a very good answer. He said, well, justification is about the cross. The cross is about Christ, and it's Christ who says, if you did it to thee, the least of these, you did it to me. Whenever I meet with Wheaton College students, and they always say, what's the, center, what's the center of what you do? I always say the forgiveness of sins. That's always off-putting for them, because they think, maybe as some of you do, that's all there is to it. Man, when I say the forgiveness of sins, I mean everything. I mean I'm in Eden. I mean Christ is for me. I mean he's given me a spirit. He gives me his Eucharist, his name, his baptism, his love. He gives me a new life. He strengthens me for the days ahead, even for people who are jerks, even when I'm a jerk. Okay? 
That's the beginning, not the end. It's extraordinarily important. If you join this congregation, you sit on your hands for 40 years, and you don't do anything, you're a sinner. And James is going to say in a little bit, your salvation may be in jeopardy. Okay? This is very important. It's just the text. I mean, don't blame it on me. We're going to read the text, but that's what the texts say. Okay, it's extraordinarily important that you understand this is the beginning, not the last thing. You can see how I'm doing here with eight pages. You know, I've got uh, 13 minutes left. We should make it, I think. Okay? <laughs> The second thing is participation, which is, think about it as participating in kids' soccer. Think about it as participating, you know, you know, in the women's group. Think about it as participating in the school. Think about, it, participate. Think about it any way you want. It means what it says. You participate. It's the epistle written for today. Don't you know that you partake? You participate in the altar of a demon if you bend your, your knee there. Don't you know that? It just means playing along. Play along. The 12 disciples, they played along. They, you know, it's like, you know, you want to, you know, it's like walking behind somebody in the snow. They make a step and you stand in the same step. That's participation. You play along. So it's to be drawn into the life of Christ. You notice I distinguish that from, so incarnation, incorporation, I'm sorry, is to be drawn into Christ. Participation is to be drawn into the life of Christ. Now, in a second, I'm going to say to you, you can't cut those two in half, but we do. When we distinguish between justification and sanctification, we have cut Jesus in half. And we have said, I'll have that half, because it suits me, I'm not going to hell, but I won't have that half, which is all about mercy and witness and care and generosity and being kind to each other and loving people who hate me and forgiving people. I won't have that half, because that doesn't suit me. It's a false distinction. It's a theologian's distinction. It's a clarity distinction, but it's not a life distinction. You cannot separate Christ from his works and Christ from his deeds. You cannot. And you cannot, as James says, separate a Christian, what he believes from what he does, what he says from how his hands and his mouth and his ears and his eyes work. Yes, I know we all sin. Me too. I know that. I'm well aware of that. And I've said to you in the past, you know, some days we just have to say he had a bad day. I wish you would grant me that grace too. But I'm talking about months, years, a lifetime of only thinking about yourself. We're trying to shake, that, shake you out of that and bring people to the kingdom of God, to a life that... I was thinking the other day, I'm stuck... Well, I shouldn't say that on tape. So, uh, I'll say it on tape. I was stunned that Gainig wasn't asked back. Gainig taught enough... And it may just be a scheduling gig, but he, you know, Gainig taught apologetics over at the university. And then... They didn't ask him back this year, and I kind of shake in my head, uh, partly because he taught it in a postmodern way. Now, there's two things that could have happened. One is it could be a scheduling gig, or it could have been he's so far in front of the guys over there, they didn't know what to do with him. But here's the interesting thing. All the students on the first day thought he was stupid. They ring his phone off the hook. Every time I go down to his office, I'm like, who are you talking to? Yeah, one of my old students. That's when you know you got him. As I say to the vicars, you know, you don't listen to me while you're here. But when you're sitting in the dark in your first parish six months in, ringing my phone number, that's my sweet revenge, you know? <laughs> you go do whatever you want. I said, you know, the great thing about you is you're free of me. After, on the first of June, you are free of me. You never think about me again, and I'll just pray the rosary for you, okay? That always gets them. I always say that. I just say it just like that, because they get off balance then, you see. Part of having a vicar is keeping off balance. But I always say, you know what? Just do what I tell you for a year, and when you get out, you can do whatever you want. But the reality is, you know, 
they spend all their time calling us back because it ain't as easy as it looks. So participation is to be drawn into the life of Christ, you know, to be living the life after life after death. Christ with you. Now you've heard this before, the rhythm of the Christian life. Or in Matthew 28, best translated as teaching them to observe, teaching them, not, that's not the best translation, the best translation is teaching everybody to treasure up, same word used of Mary when she watches what happened at Christmas. She treasured up all these things in her heart and pondered them in her heart. Jesus uses the same word, Ruth, teaching them to treasure up all the things I've left behind. Teaching people to, you know what your life is supposed to be? Treasuring up all the gifts. There are gifts everywhere, in the stained glass, you know, in the colors, on the altar, in the candles, in each other, in the school, in the Sunday school, in the staff, in parishioners. The gifts are everywhere. Your job is to treasure up the gifts and figure that out. It doesn't mean you can have everything all the time, you know, but it does mean that you're meant to treasure it up or Christ through you. I was thinking this morning, in fact, why don't you turn? I always skip these passages. I should make you read them. Turn to Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. Okay? Turn to Matthew 5 for a second. Somebody want to read Matthew 5, 13 to 16? So Matthew, if you're kind of new, Matthew is 67% of the way from the front cover of your Bible, okay? Matthew 5 will be right there, okay? Somebody want to read Matthew 5, loud voice, 13 to uh, 16. Want to read anybody? Come on, you chickens, go ahead. Faster. Loud. You do have a loud voice now? Oh, never mind, okay. <laughs> Sometimes it's nice to put the obvious things out in front. Go ahead. I mean, what's it say? And I'm just going to read this in the James way, which is, uh, James, not his brother, by the way, Pastor Ganey, wherever you're sitting. So, uh, uh, James, the Bishop of Jerusalem, you'll go that far, won't you, buddy? Yes, you will. Okay. The James way would be, you're the salt of the earth, and guess what? If you don't season up the world, you're probably not the salt of the earth. You're a city set on a hill, you're a big light. Guess what? If there's no light, you're probably not a city. This is Jesus talking. This isn't Paul or James. This is just what it says. I mean, the, the text is the text. You know, you can't hide it. If this is who you are, you can't hide it. Okay? So, that would mean in our life together, if our justification is settled, if our being forgiven is settled, then our living forgiven is going to take some what? Sometimes rebuke, sometimes correction, and sometimes encouragement and sometimes affirmation. But, you know, the great nonsense that a pastor is not to be in judgment of his congregation, we're going to read the text later, um, especially in a congregation that has this many bright people, you know. The, book, the funniest thing for me always is when people come to me, and this happens all the time, people say, why don't you lead? You know, to do something. <laughs> thinking to myself, okay. The, the, what they normally mean when they say that is, what they mean is, why don't you do what I want to do? 
And the problem is, is you know, you're all bright people, and as you know, there's several ways to get from here to Miami. There are direct flights. You can go through Vancouver. In fact, you can go through Sydney if you want. Or I suppose you could probably go over the polar ice cap. None of them are wrong, they're just different. But what people mean is, they, when they say, why don't you lead, what they almost to a person mean is, why don't, they, why don't you lead, the proper thing would be, and we'll follow you wherever you go. What they normally mean is, why don't you do what I want? The problem in a congregation or in a place with 2,000 people is, one person wants to lead this way and go that way, and the other person wants to go like this, and the other person wants to go like this, and I think we should go over here, but they think I should go over here. And then therefore, everybody gets disappointed. Why? Because everybody's a leader and nobody's a follower. There was a great editorial about two weeks ago in the newspaper that said, our problem isn't with leadership. We think our problem is leadership in America. Our problem is followership. Nobody can listen. <coughs> Nobody can do what they're told. Everybody is their own president. Everybody's their own CEO. Everybody's their own pastor. At the end of this, we're going to talk about self-pastoring. Because here's your deal. You either have a pastor or you are your own pastor. There's no in-between. You'll either be pastored or you'll be your own pastor. There is no in-between. So for my own pastor, it was 20 years till I even disagreed with him. I was 46 before I even, before I disagreed, and it was mild. Wouldn't it be the case that? Isn't it possible that? 20 years. But see, we don't think that way. We don't, we don't know what to do with pastors. You don't know what to do with me. I don't know what to do with you because we're in a denomination that hasn't spoken about pastoral care for a century. How would anybody know? Okay, well, you read the text. Well, maybe we can figure it out. Participation is to be drawn into the life of Christ. It's to be living the life after life after death. Christ with you, the rhythm of the Christian life. If you've been here a while, Christ's scripture prayer, the divine service, right? Generous giving, words of witness, acts of mercy. You know, what spelled it out seven ways when I first came, I cut it to three later. Acts of mercy, words of witness, care of the soul. I mean, if you've been around for any of the capital campaigns or the teaching, I mean, this is, this is what you do, the rhythm of the Christian life, which animates you, prompts you, propels you. If you ever get nervous that you think we don't know what we're doing, go read Galatians 2.20. Somebody got it? Pick it up. Galatians 2.20. We're at Galatians 3, which was the favorite verse of Martin Chemnitz, who I wrote my PhD on. You got it there, buddy? Somebody got it? Galatians 2.20. Just so you don't think I'm fudging the text, you know. Got it? Come on, help me, cheaters. Come on now. <clears throat> that is incorporation and participation in one verse. I've been crucified with Christ, justification, incorporation. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, participation. In one verse, that's everything we're trying to do. He was crucified for me, so I live a different kind of life. We've got to figure out how that life works out together, okay? Christ by you, and then Pastor Ganey was very good about this when he said, you may be the only grace anybody ever gets. <clears throat> or Luther said, we're all little Christ to each other. These are the next steps in following me. Remember I said the, first, the, the, the incorporation is the first step? These are the next steps. And what happens is you have to work out your next steps based on the first step. A congregation's job and a pastor's job is to always say, my steps are going right behind Jesus. Boom, 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 boom. John 6, everybody leaves. You know why? Because everybody says to Jesus, why don't you lead? And then he says, 
fantastic. This is the day you're going to get it. I'm the bread that's dropped down from heaven. If you don't eat my body and drink my blood, you have no place in the kingdom of God. What do they do? Remember? What do they do? They all walk away. And then Jesus says to the disciples, well, I'm done now. I guess I'm done. Where are you going? I guess he wanted to send a postcard. He was curious. And Peter says what we sing every Sunday. Hallelujah, Lord. Where are we going to go? And it strikes me when people leave. I always think to myself, where are you going to go? You know, where are you going to go? And get the stuff this straight and this good. Where are you going to go? Wisdom is proved in her years. And so the next steps are follow me, and we're on the way home to Eden. So I've tried to say to you, the distinction is artificial. And if you could take this home and chew it, it would be helpful. This distinction between, even between incorporation and participation, even between justification and sanctification, it is, it is, it is wrong. We're not, saying, we're not saying anything. Some of you have come and say, you know, I don't know if I'm going to make it. You know, you're, you're putting it on me so hard, I, I, don't know, I, I don't know if I'm saved. I'm like, that's not the discussion. We're presuming you're all saved. I asked you. Raise your hand if you're saved by works. Nobody raised their hand. Okay, we're not going to talk about works then. We're done with that. We killed that in Galatians 1. Raise your hand if you think you're not saved. Or if you're too shy to raise your hand, come and see me. You're baptized. You carry the body of Christ. You can bear his wounds. I mean, that great text, they bear his wounds in his body today. Right? Now, this is incredibly important. And this is a... This is a um, this is a miss in Lutheranism, especially of my generation, and it is a miss that is so big that people can't, don't even know how to talk about good works, and they don't know how to talk about good works because they miss this next thing, okay? This is what's extraordinarily important. There is just one word in Eden. In Eden, there is no law or gospel yet. They are artificial terms applied later. There is just Jesus. And if you remember that from here all the way to you go home to Eden, then you'll understand our world. In Eden, there is just one word. There is Jesus, and he continually reveals himself as they walk in the garden in the cool of the day. He tells them who he is, and he shows them a new thing every time, and he talks with them, and he lets them be, and they love each other, and life's good, until that horrible day when he says, hey, I thought we were walking together today. Four o'clock. That's what we always walk at four. Come on now, where are you? We're hiding. Why are you hiding? Because we're naked. How do you know you're naked? Because we sin. At that point, the single word is divided law and gospel. So it's very simple. You shouldn't toss around law and gospel if you don't know what you're talking about. The law is when you run against Jesus, or Jesus runs against you. The gospel is when you run with Jesus, they're better to say Jesus runs with you. Okay? And if you split those in two, you don't know how to talk about your life. So I said, you know, how does that ever happen? Well, it's an occupational hazard of being Lutheran, you know? We're taught to think long gospel way, and believe me, it's an extraordinarily valuable way to think, but it's not the first way to think, because it wasn't in Eden. Okay, so here's what's really important. 
Every word can be said two ways, and I'll leave you with this. If you start with this, you'll get everything that follows from Paul and James. If you don't start with this, you'll never get it right. Pastors screw this up all the time. They get all boxed up because they don't know how to talk about good works, so they never talk about good works, so nobody ever does any good works, or at least not at the capacity they could. The single thing, this is extraordinarily important, every word can be said two ways. Every word can be said a law way and a gospel way. Okay, now, I'll start with Jesus himself. If you've ever seen the paintings, occasionally you'll see a painting of the second coming where Jesus is coming down on the throne, sometimes he's floating, sometimes he's sitting. In one hand, he has a sword, and in the other hand, he has a flower, normally a lily. What does that mean? It means Matthew 26. He's going to come and separate the sheep and the goats. The sheep get the lily. Boom. You're with me. When did we do it to you? Uh, it doesn't, he did it, and it's all good. The goats get the sword. Jesus is not always gospel. If you force him to be the law, he will be the law. If you refuse him, he's not going to force you to be saved. If you could just get one thing today, that would be it. There's a single word in Eden. After Eden, every word can be said two way, a law way and a gospel way. And in Eden, things will be restored. There won't be any long gospel. There'll just be Christ again. So it's a single question. How do you engage Christ? Do you say, as Adam did, I'm better than you at being God. I'm better than you. As somebody cleverly said, Adam and Eve didn't eat because they were hungry. Right? You get this? Adam and Eve didn't eat because they were hungry. They ate because they were smarter than God himself. They didn't need anything. They thought they'd be better gods. They didn't eat because they were hungry. That is a great line stolen from another pastor through a parishioner. That is a great line. That's somebody who knows what they're talking about. They didn't eat because they were hungry. They ate because they thought they could do a better job. And the original sin is always thinking we can do a better job, and now I'm going to say it, than the person put in authority. And now you're going to have to come back and figure out what authority is, because I know for most of you that makes your skin crawl. But I'll just tell you, I'll give you a little advance warning. It's Jesus who says, I come as one, Matthew 20, 28, I come among you as one who serves. And the answer, you have to dis learn to distinguish between authority and power. And that's part of what's bollocked up here, is you don't know when it's authority and when it's power. And the difference is when it's resistible, when it's not, which is the difference between law and gospel, but I can't do any more today. So you should take this home, read through, uh, but I just guarantee you a common body. You remember we read from Colossians, I've come that you might have this common bond among you. If you don't have a common vocabulary, a common belief to go from, then we all look at each other and we all think everybody thinks everybody else is crazy. The only way you agree is when you have your terms straight. So it's going to be extraordinarily important going forward. Um, and in some ways, this is probably good because it's probably a good time to kind of you know, regroup and make sure we're all on the same page. Um, you can call me, you can email me, you can bring your questions next week. Uh, you can say anything you want, but from the text, not from emotional outbursts, from the text. You may not like it, that doesn't mean I'm wrong. It just means you don't like it, okay? So, you know what? Get your text out. If you can show me from the text where I'm wrong, I will have it. But just because you have an emotional reaction to something you've never heard before, that doesn't mean I'm wrong. It just means you're having an emotional reaction. There's a difference between those two things, okay? And ultimately, there's an external rubric, Christ, and you have to ask yourself, you're in his footsteps or not.
So that's the bottom line, and that's what we're all after. You're after it, I know you're after it, I'm after it too, um, and the stakes are very high. All right, see you next week. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.